Hi, my name is Mike Yunker. Uh, I am the director of Anapa'o Ministries. Sounds Hawaiian, but it's actually Greek. Uh, it's the word that Jesus used when he says, Come to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you Anapa'o. It means a beautiful pause. And I really have the privilege and the honor to walk alongside pastors and their families and missionaries and really people serving on the front lines, um, really loving others and sometimes finding themselves being on the outside looking in. And so I really get the distinct privilege to walk alongside um, folks to, to love on them, to love on them and create safe environments for them to be vulnerable. And I, I do that. And then I also work with about 35 men and about another 20, 30 people, depending on the night, at a recovery center called Shepherd's House Ministries. I'm the program director out there. And so most of my time during the day is spent looking at about 30 to 35 squirrely people, addicts. So looking up is going to be hard for me. I mean, they're usually all around here or running out and running. Out. Anyway, it's, 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 uh, it's great. And I'm really honored to be here this morning. Um, the best thing I have on my resume is that I'm a child of the king. Um, that's it. And, um, and I believe the only thing that ever qualifies anybody to stand up here and share their experience, strength, and hope about the love of Christ is that you have a birth certificate. Um, that uh, you were born, so you have a voice. Really, no other certificate matters. You have voice. And you're beautifully and wonderfully created by God. So I want to pray this morning as the Holy Spirit buckles you in for what he wants to say to your heart this morning. So can we do that? I'm just going to take a minute. We're just going to, I'm going to bow my head. You do what you like. I won't know. And uh, we'll pray. So Father... Lord, I'm not going to pray this morning that we take all of our worries and problems and concerns and leave them at the back door. Um, Lord, that we want to bring them in. We need to bring them into this place. We need to bring them in and lay them down right before you. We need to be our honest selves in this place this morning. Because there's absolutely no shame. There's no shame in you. And so, Father, I would ask this morning, be with our hearts as you speak to us, as you remind us of who we are and who we're not. I pray that your, your word would do something so beautiful in the hearts of each one of us that we would walk out of here different than when we came in. We don't want to be smarter, God. Being smart is not a fruit of the Spirit. But Lord, we want to be changed. And so we pray that this morning. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 7, verse 36, if you have um, Bibles or electronic devices that helps you with this, um, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. 
a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet, or the Greek word here is, it began to rain on Jesus' feet, her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them over and over and over again. She never stopped kissing his feet as she poured perfume on them and massaged his feet as she wept. Well, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, you know, if this man were really a prophet of God, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a harmartuoi, she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Hey, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, I'm all ears. Well, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. (laughs) You've judged correctly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, I think that's key, he looked at her talking to him, but not really talking to him. Do you see this woman? If you like to write in your Bible like I do, that is a great line there. Do you see this woman? I think there's certain questions that we need to write on three by five cards and post them on the mirrors of our bathrooms. And if you're a boy, you can write, do you see this man? If you're a woman, you can keep the text as is, right? Do you see this person looking at you in the mirror? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, she's looking at her talking to Simon. I tell you. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in Shalom, go in wholeness, go in peace. So I want to talk about one of the primary uh, core values we have at Anapao as well as at Shepherd's House. And it's really just a one-line thing that we believe all of our ministry is drawn from. And it's really this, and this is my whole point this morning, uh, grace changes everything. 
and you'll spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what the everything is. Our whole life is experiencing the everything. That grace changes everything. But to do that, we've got to read these stories with an idea of who God is and who God is for us. Because I believe the most important thought you'll ever have in your life is what you believe about God. Not that you believe God exists. That's easy enough. But what you believe about him means everything. And so Jesus comes here, and he's having dinner with this Pharisee, and this woman comes in, and and she is a sinful woman. Everybody knows what she does in town. Most people believe she was probably the town prostitute. How she knows where Simon lives, who knows? But she shows up. There's Jesus. She stands there at the feet of Jesus, and if you know anything about Eastern culture, they're not sitting at a table, but instead they're leaning against one in an oriental fashion with their feet facing outward in a horseshoe-sized or horseshoe-shaped table. And the waiters and waitresses would come in and serve around there and go back. And so Jesus is there laying. And so she breaks in. She has to see Jesus. She hears that Jesus is there. Every other man in her life has used her and abused her. And she wants to know, is it true that there's a man out there that will not see me as a commodity, but see me as me? Can I be touched and not be abused? And she shows up, she sees him, and there's something about Jesus, right? There's something about the look in his eye that unravels the best of us. And when he locks eyes with her, she just... Worship. And as she's unraveling here, Simon begins to talk. I I think it's important that we define what sin is before we go much farther as we talk about grace. Because if we're going to talk about grace, we've got to talk about sin. And if we're going to talk about sin, we've got to talk about shame. Shame is birthed in this story. There's a shame that starts to get birthed here by the Simons in our life that begin to say, if they only knew, if she only knew, if he only knew. And so... Sin number one has to be couched as this, right? And this is, and I'm going to speak for me here. There's no book, chapter, and verse on this. This is my experience. This is my life. This is my experience, strength, and hope I share with you. And that's this. Sin in the context of shame is simply our human means of dealing with fear and pain. Sin, at its core, is the way that we deal with pain and fear in our lives. My addictions come from a place where I was hurt and abused and broken, and I did the best I knew to take care of the pain. So sin can be anything that's outside of God's will, but God's will for me is to be whole and set free. And so whenever I reach out for anything to help numb that pain, to help bring some sort of soothing balm to my soul outside of God, we would call that, quote, sin. It's not a moral ethic. It's anything that's outside of God's heart for you. 
How many of you have ever heard the saying, you know, sin is missing the mark? Anybody, anybody heard that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's common, right? It, I guess literally that's what the Greek means, but the mark normally means some type of ethic. Like, well, you were supposed to do this, but you did this. I believe the mark is not an ethic. The mark is God's wholehearted love for you. And anytime anything swerves us away from that, that's the thing that God says, I want that back. I want to bring that back. So when a woman is, in this story at least, says that she led a life of sin, she led a life of pain and trauma and hurt. We deal with men every day in our program. I deal with pastors and their wives and missionaries who are absolutely riddled with pain and trauma. And they're doing the best they can with what they know at the time. And they're dying on the inside. And the thing about sin is it works until it doesn't work anymore. The addiction works until it doesn't. And the thing about it is that when we go through trauma and woundedness, we have the pain here and the enemy, the sneaky devil, comes up alongside our pain and whispers a lie into the pain. And the two get cut together, stuck together, and we begin to live out of that place. When my father left me and my brother with my mom, who uh, was not in a good place, to a man who would be a cocaine addict and abusive, I remember begging my dad not to leave, begging him not to leave, and he left. And at seven years old, that pain settled deep in my heart. But what happens is the enemy comes up alongside of us and whispers a lie that connects with the pain. And for me, Here's, was the, here's what the lie was. Mike, you're not worth sticking around for. If he loved you, he would have stayed. You're not lovable. And that weaves itself into the fabric of our person to where as you grow up, we begin to manage relationships and keep people at bay. Because you begin to realize that if I get people close to me, what are they going to do? They're going to leave because I'm not lovable. And I'm going to begin to do something off to the side here to try to numb this pain that's inside of me, but I can't let people in. Because if people really knew who I was, if people really knew what I was going through, if people really knew what I did, they would neither love me nor like me. And the Simons in our mind and the Simons in our heart say to us, Mike, don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you've done? You can't be touched. 
And you can't be reaching out to God. You can't be doing this. No, no, no. You can do it religiously, but you better not let people know what you're really up to, what's really going on, what's really happened to you. You can't let them know the real hurt. You cannot be vulnerable. And friends, that lie, that lie poisons not just you, it poisons communities, churches, families, generations. The earmarks of shame, if you just want to take some notes here, Dan Allender has a great work on this, but I think it really fits into what this woman's going through here as she's standing before Jesus and you have Simon the soothsayer. I say that, the Simon the liar over here. Here's what shame looks like. It always involves exposure. When we have shame, it means something's being exposed. Secondly, it's an exposure of something we see in ourselves or others see in us that is deemed repulsive, wrong, disgusting, or foul. So it's an exposure, but it's an exposure of something that we think or other people think make us unworthy, disgusting, shame. Number three, it ruins any sense of dignity and delight. When you're living in shame, it's really tough to experience joy. It always partners with judgment and contempt. And the last thing about shame is that it's not abstract, but it's attached to a story of your own woundedness and your own trauma. Shame always has a face attached to it, an event attached to it a story of what happened to you, what was done to you. I work with a young man who at seven years old was locked under a sink by his mom's boyfriend and was covered in spiders and she would, he'd invited his friends to come over and listen to him scream as he was begging to get out from underneath the sink. And is it any wonder today he struggles with letting anybody into his life. To open up and be vulnerable. This sinful woman was told a lie, and it was that she was unworthy of love. And I want to say something to you here this morning, friends. There's absolutely nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less. Nothing. I want you to turn to the person next to you right now, said, you hear what Mike said? Just turn to him right now, say, did you hear what Mike just said? Did you hear what he just said? Did you hear what he just said? There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you anymore, and there's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any less. When Jesus was on the cross and he said to humanity, forgive them, Father, for what? Anybody know this? For they what? No, not what they do. Most of us think we're so full of shame that we have no business 
having friends. We have no business being loved. And if people really knew what we did or what we've gone through or what's happened, people would neither love me nor like me. So we isolate, we run away. And Jesus says, listen, listen, no, 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 no. You understand that you don't even know why you do what you do, but I do. Grace looks past the behavior. Get this. Grace looks past the behavior and looks at the heart of every person and their woundedness. And they say, I know why you're addicted to pornography. It's not enough to simply just, well, we just can't look at it. Unplug it from the wall. Throw your computer out the window. That's not going to fix it. Grace is the face of love. And it looks past behaviors and it says, this, I know why you do what you do. You don't even know. So Jesus sees this. He sees this in this woman. So we see shame birthed here out of the Simon-like things that are said about us and to us. But then there's a shamed scorn. Hebrews 12, 2, remember Jesus uh, is described as with the joy set before him, he would endure the cross scorning its, what? Anybody know this verse? Scorning its shame. Jesus stands up for this woman and scorns the shame. Looks at Simon, he says, do you see this woman? Do you see her? When's the last time you've let somebody see you? Question this morning is, do you want to be seen? Do you want to really be seen? Or are we covered in proverbial fig leaves? It's no, it's no wonder that the fig leaves in the book of Genesis covered up our most intimate, vulnerable places and the same places that we experience pleasure and joy. You close your door, if you close the door of your heart to being seen, you close your door to your heart of being loved. I suspect if you're like me, you wear a mask at times. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How's life? It's good. How's your marriage? Better than I deserve. How's church? Oh, it's, it's good. Hey, what are you doing on your phone? None of your business. Do I want to? Do I want to see myself? Do I want to see myself? So, question this morning. I guess the biggest question is, what does God see? Because God's opinion of you is the most accurate one. Can we all say that? Can we all nod our heads at that? God's opinion of you is more accurate than your opinion of you. So what does God see? 
So I'm going to do a little illustration here, okay? Um, I heard a guy, Dave Busby, shared this one time, and it ministered to my heart. Maybe it'll minister to yours. So I'm going to walk down here. <clears throat> so imagine if Jesus were to show up this morning to Edgewater and go, well, you know, Mike, I know you had a message all prepared, and you've been praying about it for weeks now, but I'm going to take over the service. And I would say, it's your church. Do what you want. And uh, he says, all right, well, here's what, here's what I want to do. We're going to extend time here this morning. Don't get nervous. Not, this is just a story. Okay. And I saw all the parking lot staff freak out. All right, so. But what I want to do is I want to have a public yet personal conversation with each and every one of you. Public yet personal conversation. Knee to knee, toe to toe, nose to nose with each and every one of you. Question this morning would be, what would he say about you? What would he say to you? So this question was asked to high school students, hundreds and hundreds of high school students around the country, Christian kids, kids growing up in Christian homes and go to church, and what would Jesus say about you? Well, there were four basic answers and it went something like this. So it, uh, the first one was, oh, yeah, I know how it would go. I know how it would go. If Jesus came down knee to knee, toe to toe, nose to nose, and he knew everything about me, I know how it would go, Mike. It goes something like this. Mike, I don't know if you know this, but I am so angry with you. Angry. Haven't you read the book? Don't you do your devotions? Aren't you praying? Oh, don't give me this whole bit about your childhood. I don't want to hear all that. You can do better. Come on. The first word these young people came up with was angry, that if they went knee to knee, toe to toe, nose to nose with Jesus, he'd be angry with them. Or if it wasn't anger, it went something like this, Mike. Oh, I know how it would go. I know how it would go. Knee to knee, toe to toe, nose to nose with Jesus. He knows everything about me. It goes something like this. Mike, I am so oh, disgusted with you. Oh. Here I die on the cross for you and you can't even break that silly little habit? Oh. I am so disgusted with what you do. And who you've become. Ugh. So God was either angry with them, disgusted with them. And the third one here, this is heartbreaking. This third one. It's like, oh, no, I know how it would go, Mike. It goes something like this. Knee to knee, toe to toe, nose to nose. It goes something like this. Um, yeah, uh, Mike. You are such a disappointment to me. You could have been so much more. You could have made some right choices here and right choices there, but look at you. Look what you've become. You're such a disappointment. Or if it wasn't that, 
The last one was, oh, I know how it would go, Mike. It would go something like this. Jesus would be like, oh, oh, oh you're still there. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. He'd be distant. Angry, disgusted, disappointment, and distant. That's what these kids thought. And is it any wonder if this is what they think? They're out here this morning. Let's worship a God that's angry with me. Let's, let's give praise to a God that's disgusted with me, that's disappointed with me, a God that, that doesn't even listen to me, that seems to be distant from my life. And they stay away in droves because they're absolutely ashamed. Which, by the way, when those same kids were asked, um, if you had a knee-to-knee, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose conversation with your father, they gave four answers. And you just heard them. The trauma in our life affects what we think God thinks of us. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, that is not the good news. That's bad news. That is bad news. That is not the gospel. If Jesus went knee to knee, toe to toe, nose to nose with you, he'd say to you what he already said in the book. Psalm 139, 17 says, Mike, when I think about you, this is David talking. David says, God, if I were to count your thoughts towards me, they would outnumber the sands of the sea. That's not David's thoughts towards God's. That's God's thoughts towards him. If Mike, do you know that every day I sit at the edge of your bed and I wait for you to wake up because I am so excited to be with you, that I absolutely love you, that I made you in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And do you know, Mike, that the only time fear is ever described about me is when I made you. That when I was weaving your story into existence, I actually brought you in and I was shaking because my love for you is absolutely so ravishingly beautiful that I created the universe so you could be in it. This is what I think about you. I think about you every day. I brag about you to the angels. You're, I'm like a crazy grandpa that every time they walk by, I say, hey, have you seen what Mike's doing today? Mike's doing awesome today. Do you know that the Holy Spirit, Jesus and I, every day we get together, we have breakfast and we say, how can we show Mike how much we love him today? Every day. That is the truest thing you're going to hear in your entire life. Which is why your number one job on the planet is to be loved by God, period. That's your number one job. That's it. That's it. We can all go home now. You're like, oh, I don't have to be here? Nope, you can go home. Your number one job is to be loved by God. You say, Mike, that sounds too easy. Oh, really? 
So I know there's some people here this morning that say, oh, Mike, no, 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 that's not true. Our number one job is to worship God. Nope, you're wrong. Oh, no, our number one job is to glorify God. No, our number one job is to go win the world for Jesus. Nope. Your number one job is to be loved by God. See, most people believe that if I change my behavior, I become another person. If I could change my behavior, I'll become somebody new. But it's actually the opposite. The more that I see myself the way Jesus sees me, the more my heart is changed and I begin to act accordingly to how he sees me. Does that make sense what I said? I mean, how many of us have come to realize God is not an evangelical? He's not. Evangelicals look at each other and we're like, hey, you've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of work to do. Boy, you better get started on that. Yeah, you better get rid of that. And we don't even tell them. We're saying that behind their back. Yeah, they've got a lot of work to do. Should pray for them. Oh, yeah. But it seems to me like that's not how it works. Because Jesus in this story here tells us something quite the opposite, right? Don't you find it funny that every story of a money lender that Jesus tells never gets paid back? It's almost as if the money lender knew that they were never going to get the money back. It was only to help a person realize what it's like to live in forgiveness. Maybe we need to come to believe when Jesus said through the Father that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the earth. It would seem to me that forgiveness comes long before you ask for it. And in fact, Jesus says it himself in the Sermon on the Mount. I know what you need even before you what? Anybody know this? Even before you ask. You've been in forgiveness long before you ever sinned. And that's why Paul will say in Romans later, where sin increases, grace increases what? All the more. Which is why when we love, we love out of a place of forgiveness and grace. Which is what this woman experienced, right? You know, Simon, I came in here, you didn't wash my feet, I didn't get anointed, and, all, and that's cool, because that's you, Simon, that's cool. But what's not cool is for you to say that this woman, this woman who you've deemed unworthy of love, somehow doesn't, isn't allowed to love isn't allowed to experience love, isn't allowed to give love away. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, he who is forgiven little loves what? Loves little. But he who is forgiven much loves what? Loves much. So what we're coming to learn is not only is shame designed, not only is it birth and it's scorned, but Jesus actually buys your sin back. He actually redeems the shame. Now, this is going to blow your mind, but he actually redeems the shame. How many of you, some of you are going to experience this today by getting baptized, right? You're going to come into the waters. When you get back out, you're going to feel as white as snow, but you're still going to have the memories. Have you ever wondered why God forgave me of the sin, but he, kept, he let me keep the memories? Because that's part of your story, and what he does is he scorns the shame, he removes the shame, and instead he says, now, you know that thing that happened to you, Mike? 
that time when your dad left, yeah, I'm, that's my story now. And when it becomes my story, now it's not a story of shame. Now it's a story that you get to worship out of. It's a story where God says, I get to set you free from the shame and you get to see it for what it is. It's where we experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit, but it's also where we get our passion. I, I get nervous for the church of my day, friends, because uh, I find that we lose our passion and we're getting so homogenized with we're all sound the same, look the same, dress the same. We need a little caliente. Right? I love it when people tell me their stories, especially guys at the house. They tell me their stories about their life before they came to know the Lord. And then when they know the Lord, it like everything gets downshifted to molasses. And then I came to know Jesus. And I kind of liked you better when you were on the run. So there, this, there, is this, there is this thing in us, right, where we have these stories, but what are we to do with them? Well, if we isolate and we keep them to the side, it keeps us in shame and in the shadows. But Jesus says, no, 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 here's what we do. We're going to be vulnerable with one another. We're going to open up and say, listen, shame doesn't owe me anymore, so I can tell you my stuff. I can open up about my stuff. And what happens is, is the ball and chain that used to keep me in prison, that the enemy shackled to my ankle and puts over here that's been dragging me down to the bottom of the sea, I actually get to undo it from my ankle. And God says, now what are you going to do with it? You're going to toss it? Oh, no, no, no. That's not what you're going to do, Mike. You're going to use it as a blunt weapon. And I'm going to beat the tar out of anything that stands in the way of God's love in an individual that experienced what I experienced. I'm actually in the business of setting captives free. And the tool that I use is the very thing that shackled me for years. So anytime the enemy shackles you with shame, know that in Jesus, that's going to be a weapon. See, my battle isn't against Satan. Never is. I don't fight the enemy. He's not worth my time. My battle is to be loved by God in the midst of my pain and hurt. Because he has a way of undoing it, putting it in your hand and say, guess what, Mike? I'm going to send you to a mission with 35 other guys, and we're just going to beat the tar out of the enemy with the very thing that kept you locked up. And this woman who walks into the room full of shame leaves not just saved, but she goes in peace. I don't think this peace is a sense of, oh. I think she walks out of there swinging this ball and chain around she had. She says, all right, buddy, who's next? She's like this warrior bride. When she lifts up her dress, she's wearing army boots. I mean, that's the church. A beautiful bride. Swinging our weaknesses to set captives free. My grace is sufficient for you, God would tell Paul, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. 
When the church isn't feeling powerful, it's because we're not being honest with one another about what we're really going through. When will we come to learn, friends, that we connect as the body of Christ in our weaknesses and brokenness, not on our strengths and abilities? We connect in these hurting places. Friends, grace changes everything. I pray this morning that, I don't know if you've been, I don't know how long you've been a Christian. I'm starting to find in my life that God has called me to reach reach Christians for Jesus. So if you're a Christian this morning, but like you're in that place, I want to invite you to the good news that God loves you. Why? Because he loves you, 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 because he loves you. Not in spite of your stuff, but with it. Father, this morning, I thank you for my friends in this room. Lord, I thank you for this woman who busts in and breaks up a party And she makes it into a worship service. Lord, I am coming to believe in my own life that grace changes everything. And God, I would ask that this morning, if there's even one person here, one person who your Holy Spirit is moving and, and touching, that you would remind their hearts that they are loved, that they'd find someone this morning to reach out to, that they'd find a safe person to say, hey, I'm going through this, and I don't know who to tell, but I can't hide it anymore. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to be the Lord in the church, amongst us, not just over us, but in our relationships, God. We just thank you. We love you so much. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.